we're having another four minutes of threads episode today and we start at 36 minutes in well we actually start at 36 minutes 20 as i overran in the last episode because i wanted to finish the scene if you remember it was the the very sad solemn scene where clive sutton the leader of sheffield council gets the call that it's time to go to the bunker we don't hear the conversation, but it's obvious that that's what he's been told. This is the end. Pack your things and go. And he gently urges his worried wife to get off home before the roads get too busy. He slips a photograph of her into his briefcase alongside his war plans. So our next scene is a loud one. It opens with rows and rows of policemen who are monitoring the crowd at a protest. You might think that the police, at this dreadful time, the countdown to nuclear war, would have enough on their hands. But one of their duties in the last days before nuclear war would be to round up subversives and potential subversives. And we're better to find them than at an anti-government protest. The police would have had quite a to-do list in the last days before nuclear attack. They'd have to beef up their own forces and equipment for one. This would involve a very, very rapid recruitment campaign, bringing in temporary PCs who'd be given the full power of ordinary officers even with just a few days' training. Now, I don't know what kind of police training you can receive in a few days. Police documents simply say their training will be a matter for improvised arrangements at the time. I assume you'd just be given a crash course on how to restrain someone. Because control of the population is going to be a major task after the bomb drops. Another task for the police in this horrible period would be requisitioning anything of use. The archives refer to vehicles, of course, and other equipment. They would also be put to use in guarding fuel supplies and other key points, manning the essential service routes, and lots of them would be put to work in strengthening the police station, piling up the sandbags, blocking the windows... Basically barricading it against your major threats, which are blast, heat, fallout, and yet perhaps the population themselves. I've read somewhere, I can't lay my finger on it at this moment, 
but I've read that the post-nuclear population, after they've emerged from their initial shock, after their disaster syndrome has worn off, many of them will be angry. Their world, of course, has vanished. Perhaps they saw their loved ones burned, left to die in agony, left to starve, and they'd feel helpless. And that helplessness, if the person can muster enough energy, may turn to frustration. And so they may look for someone to blame. Given that this is war and not a a natural disaster, you might blame the politicians. But you can bet they'll be tucked away in bunkers, safely out of reach. So then you might turn your rage on the police, because they are uniformed and they represent authority, they represent the state and all the horrendous mistakes they've made. I had read that the first medical aid which arrives in a stricken area, after fallout has decreased of course, might be subject to attack for this same reason. The paramedic or the civil defence worker who arrives to help you, they might be the first official person you've seen. And so you might want to hurl questions and demands at them, you might be angry, you might even try and inflict violence on them because they represent the state and no one else is around to pick up the blame. So yes, the police in this last few days, they will be barricading and fortifying their police stations for a number of reasons. One of them is us. So yes, the police would be quite busy in the last few days before nuclear attack But we can explain the massive crowd of them at this protest in Threads because they might be there, not just for crowd control, but to fulfil one of their pre-nuclear duties. Identify and round up any subversives. So that might explain why we see absolutely millions of them at this protest. Now, the protest... What are they on about? Well, the Speaker, he's demanding that the TUC call a general strike to protest against this disaster which faces us all. It is imperative, while there is still time left, that the TUC call a general strike in protest against this disaster which faces us all. That's what will destroy this still time to avert disaster. Now, what good is a general strike going to do in the face of nuclear war? Well, again, let's turn to my archives. I'm currently writing the evacuation chapter of my book. I've been writing this chapter for about 40 years, it seems, and I talk about the delicate difficulty in deciding when to evacuate your population. In the Second World War, Britain evacuated their children in September 1939, which is when the war began. So there was a very obvious signal about when to do it. War is about to be declared, so let's get the kids out. Easy, simple. A very obvious signal about when to instigate evacuation. 
But in a nuclear war, or in the period of tension which might precede a nuclear war, there's no such obvious signal. So when do you make the decision to evacuate? If it does kick off, you might only have a few minutes warning. You can't evacuate them then. The process will take days. So you would need to make your decision to evacuate well in advance of the commencement of hostilities. But what if you get the timing wrong? What if you misjudge the situation? What if you're too hasty and send your evacuees off before war was a certainty? Well, your enemy might see this. Your enemy actually would see that, of course. They would see you emptying the cities and think, okay, well, that's their thinking then, is it? War is inevitable then? Okay, so be it. You've delivered a very obvious, dangerous signal to your enemy that you see war as inevitable. You might have brought war forward then by choosing to evacuate. Or, to look at it another way, your enemy might see the evacuation of millions of your population. Your enemy might see all the terrible upheaval it brings, all the stress and upset and economic dislocation, and think, we don't need to fire a single nuke. We can ruin this lot just with the threat of war. Every time we say boo, they run. So the thinking was that an enemy could ruin you economically just with the threat of war. So maybe that's what the thinking was here in this scene in Threads. The protesters are calling for a general strike. So maybe the authorities in Britain in Threads were watching this and thinking, well, here's a classic example, causing economic chaos by the threat of war. The Russians threaten war, the Russians bring it all to the brink, and then the left-wing protesters in Britain take us over the edge. Economic ruin, without the Ruskies ever firing a shot. So that might explain the huge police presence at this protest. Indeed, one of the crowds does shout, that's what will destroy this country! He's of course angry at the speaker, maybe seeing him as a Typical troublemaking lefty who thinks a strike is the answer to bloody well everything. Remember, of course, context. Threads is set and was made in 1980s Britain when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister and was dead set on destroying the unions. And of course, Threads was released in 1984, which was at the height of the minor strike. As the camera pulls away from the face of the speaker... We see the crowd and one of them is holding up a sign saying protect and survive. Ah, but if you look closer, you'll see it actually says protest and survive. This was the title of a collection of essays edited by the socialist historian E.P. Thompson, who, um, according to his Wikipedia, was once a member of the British Communist Party. Now, he was a leading figure of the British nuclear disarmament movement of the 80s, when CND, of course, enjoyed a huge revival. So I suppose the inclusion of his title, Protest and Survive, I suppose the inclusion of that on a placard, instead of the more popular phrases like ban the bomb, is a little nod to the very left-wing character of this demo. And of course, reinforces our thinking that maybe the police are here, to pick up some commies. 
So the crowd, they start screaming and shouting and things start to get nasty out there. But before it descends into punches and kicks, before the police move in to grab people, we see, as we often do in threads, a glimpse of a child. There's a cute toddler in the crowd with a blue woolly hat on, being carried by mum, I suppose, and as ever, we get a glimpse of their painful vulnerability and their total innocence, whilst the idiot adults just ruin everything. The speaker is manhandled off the podium by the police, and then, in the middle of all the panicking and rushing and punching, there's one man in the crowd, one man who speaks sense. In the midst of it all, there is one man who is practical, and he is selling tin openers. One pound fifty a go. Come on, all of you, could save your life, he shouts. The only sensible man in the whole crowd. Our next scene is a very powerful one. It's one I often think of. We cut to an art gallery in the city, and the staff are quietly and respectfully taking the priceless paintings down from the walls. As they do this in sombre silence, we hear the crowd outside still screaming. But the museum staff, they are silent. They're probably sad, and they just carry on. Their life's work, perhaps, has been in protecting and displaying and caring for these great paintings. These examples of humanity at their best. But now the barbarians are at the gate. I don't mean the protesters outside, I mean us people as a whole. There were indeed plans to hide the nation's artwork in various quarries across the country. And I've covered that in a previous episode called Underground Art, if you want to listen to it. This uh, removal of the artwork from the museum, it's an immensely sad scene because... Even if these paintings do make it to their quarry or bunker, even if they are carefully packed and protected, even if they do survive the war intact, how long will it be before people are once again able to see them and admire them and understand them? Will it ever happen? Or will they be wheeled down into the quarry and left there for all eternity? Let's look at the paintings. We see the men lift a still life from the wall. And then another, which is, thanks to the people on Twitter who told me, a Lowry painting called Meeting Point. It looks sinister to me, showing the typical stick-thin Lowry figures. And these ones seem dark and hunched, and they're all filing into a tall, thin building. It looks to me like they're going to a funeral. I don't know what the scene is supposed to portray. If you do know, please tell me on Twitter or Facebook. But whether they're going to a funeral or not, the people look grim and dark and hunched. As if they're heading somewhere deeply unpleasant, at least. 
So the underlying message of this scene is, <laughs> as I can see it, this is why we can't have nice things. I love that we can still hear the cries from the protest outside. This scene in the museum could have been done in respectful silence. But no, the mob, the mess, the rabble, the rage is allowed to leak into the building, into this sacred space usually reserved for contemplation and beauty and reverence. In our next scene, we see another space which should be quiet, but is now being invaded by noise. It's the entrance to Sheffield City Council's bunker. It's dark down there and dusty, but has been suddenly thrown open to the light to allow the designated council staff to move in to oversee nuclear war. There are two entrances to the bunker, a staircase and an old lift, and Clive, the leader of the council, comes bustling out of the lift, all full of energy and purpose. Now that's baffling to me. I often lie awake at night when I can't sleep, which is certainly more frequently happening during lockdown, and I often imagine that moment of having to enter a bunker, having to walk down the long sloping tunnel or down the spiral staircase. Surely you'd enter thinking, this could be the last time I'll see daylight. At least a daylight that isn't polluted by fallout and darkened by ash and thick with stink. I actually wrote a play about that very scenario. My friends Karen and Tom, um, hello Karen, Karen is a patron of the podcast, they run the Short Attention Span Theatre Company and a couple of years ago when they first started, I was so honoured that they asked me to write a play for them. My first thought was, I wasn't planning on writing any plays, but if I do it, then it's got to be about nuclear war. It was called Smokers, and it was about two people having their last cigarette before going down into the bunker. I'm morbidly obsessed with that moment, that descent into the chilly underground. But not Big Clive. He seems almost jolly. Perhaps as a front, of course, a way of keeping the demons away, a way of motivating the team. Perhaps he's read some management manuals. He's also very smartly dressed, wearing his suit, overcoat and hat. Now, I know people, older people in the 80s, did tend to be a bit more dapper, but it hardly seems practical for a stint in a wartime bunker. But maybe, as with Clive's cheery demeanour, it's all a facade. I'm in charge, I will look the part, I'll put on a stiff upper lip, smart togs, neat suit, dapper hat. We shall not be crushed by the commies, maybe it's all that type of thing. I can understand that. Throughout lockdown, um, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of you. A lot of us have succumbed to <laughs> wearing slobby clothes, maybe, as you don't have to show your face to the world so much. I'm, I'm doing it right now. I'm wearing a stripy jumper with a frayed cuff 
the cuff is so frayed that when I threw a squeaky egg for Bomba in the garden this morning, my thumb caught in all the loose threads and his egg went off at a weird tangent and he was most displeased. He likes it thrown straight up the path, not off into the, the jaggy bushes. So anyway, Clive's chirpy manner, it's soon dented when he sees the bunker is practically empty. Where the hell is everybody, he demands. It seems that ten of his nominated staff are missing. But they're not missing because of terror. Because they've ran for the hills. One of them has rung in to say his car has broken down. Now that just seems intensely relaxed. Jeff, his car has broken down, so he phoned in to say he'll be a bit late. It sounds like Jeff is having a totally normal day at work and he's rung the death bunker to say, sorry, sorry boss, I'll be a bit late, bloody car, yeah, I know, I know, I'll, I'll be in as soon as I can. Everyone just seems unnaturally relaxed and blasé about this terrible instruction they've just received to enter the bunker. But then maybe that's because the staff who were picked for this duty are relaxed. Maybe they are just all intensely cool dudes. Because when these lists were drawn up, you wouldn't have chosen staff who, like me, are absolute nervous wrecks, claustrophobic, have a history of nervous breakdown and panic attacks. You wouldn't choose me. You would choose Jeff, wouldn't you? You'd choose relaxed Jeff. But even so, come on. You think they'd have realised the importance of getting there on time? Unless everyone is in denial? And now Clive says something which reveals a lot about how unprepared they all are for nuclear war. Not that you could ever be sufficiently prepared for it. But Clive says something here which shows how slapdash and last minute this whole operation has been. He says to his assistant as they walk in, which is my desk? And that shows that he's never been here before. Which is my desk? Where do I go? The bunker at this point is full of mess and hustle and bustle. Everyone is arriving, getting acquainted, finding their desk, trying to dodge all the air filters and light fittings that have been very quickly hung in the place. As Clive shakes hands with his new staff, someone walks past with a huge drum. Oh, and then, of course, we see it's actually a chemical toilet. He's no doubt going to put it off in some dignified, quiet corner in the bunker. But it's still a reminder that no matter how dapper Clive is with his suit and his trilby and his freshly ironed shirts, he'll still be going to the toilet on a big plastic drum in the corner. Life is about to get very horrible. And now we come to our last scene of the four minutes. We see a military jet roaring as it takes off, but across that horrible sound is an even more frightening sound. You know when that thing starts playing on TV and radio, that the game is nearly up? Just as we saw TV and radio given over completely to coverage of Prince Philip's death last week, so the TV and radio schedules 
would start broadcasting Protect and Survive almost non-stop in the countdown to nuclear war. As the dreadful sound of it drones on on the radio, we see Ruth and Jimmy decorating their new flat. Ruth is scraping the wallpaper off and she's crying. The radio is on in the background and it's not playing Duran Duran. Now, I was about to criticise Jimmy, which is maybe quite a, a feminine thing to do. You know, I wanted to chide him. What are you doing upsetting Ruth? Can't you see she's pregnant? Can't you see she's crying? Turn that thing off. Put a different radio station on at least. But, two things. He can't switch radio stations as there's, as we said, blanket coverage by now of Protect and Survive. And also, what's the point of trying to hide it? What's the point of trying to protect Ruth? It's coming and it's coming for all of us. The scene ends as the Protect and Survive clip says one of its most sinister lines. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. Now that line is agonising but interesting because it's both true and it's false. It's a whopping great lie that you're better off in your own home if your own home is in a target area. But in other scenarios it's, it's probably true. If your home has withstood the blast and fire and if you're not in a target area then you are probably better off there than having run for the hills where You'll be out in the open with no shelter and no supplies other than what you can carry on your back. At least if you're in your own home, you can fortify it against fallout. As long as the, the panic buyers haven't stripped B&Q of all the wood and sandbags you'll need. And as long as the neighbours don't then pinch anything you've been able to gather. And is your house worthy of fortification? Well, yes, if you live in a big stone Victorian thing, you've probably got a good chance of using it as an effective shelter, but not if, like Ruth and Jimmy, you're in a tower block. In fact, Protect and Survive actually warns residents of high-rise flats to seek shelter in the lower floors. How feasible is that? How charitable and welcoming will your neighbours on the lower floors be when 15 floors worth of neighbours <laughs> descend upon them. Hi, Protect the Survive said you might let us in. No chance. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. That's the end of this week's four minutes. Quite a juicy four minutes. A lot to discuss in that one. I just realised that I said earlier that the guy flogging tin openers for £1.50 was the only sensible man in the crowd. Obviously he's sensible in that he is practical and realises what is coming. But he's also <laughs> quite stupid because all the money he garners won't have any value after nuclear war. So he's sensible as long as the bomb doesn't actually drop. Now let me say thank you to my new patrons. There have been a lot of lovely new patrons so far over the past fortnight. 
very grateful to every single person. Remember, it's because of these great people that you don't need to sit through adverts punctuating the podcast all the time. There are a few podcasts I've listened to where the adverts drop into the middle of sentences. So let's be very grateful we don't need to suffer that. We are just total nuclear war here. And it's thanks to excellent people like Dimitri Labarge, Neil Wilkins, John Dench, Tom P. Huck, Ben Torr and William Brennan. They're my latest new patrons. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much for signing up to the Patreon. Thank you for supporting my podcast with a donation. If you want to join and contribute a donation each month, it can be as little or as large as you wish, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain. So thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next week with another episode.